0: So I was trying to think of a good title, um, a narrative, shall we say, to go with my talk today. Um, If this wasn't the title, it would be something like the changing face of citizen science. Um, I think that, and I'm going to use crowdsourcing and citizen science interchangeably, but I mean pretty much the same thing, but I'll come to some definitions in a minute certainly that I use. I just wanted to say that I think that crowdsourcing is a very popular idea and I think it's seen as potentially a source of infinite kind of resource and I think that there are some lessons that I would like to share that I think could be valuable to people who are considering starting a crowdsourcing project. And so uh, there are these three terms I think are all used interchangeably and all mean similar things and they're all in a kind of people donating time or resources, um, space. So, crowdsourcing is a term that I actually um, actually dislike, but never mind. Um, I think I dislike it because it seems like it's, it comes with the idea that it, it it's, it's a misused term. It's sometimes used to, you know, the wisdom of the crowd. Well, sometimes your crowd isn't wise if they don't actually know your domain at all. Um, so, you know, th- it's just got some it's just got some negative connotations for me. Volunteer computing is this Okay, so you're volunteering your CPU time on your computer, something like uh, uh, the BoINC project. That's um, you know, still a virtuous sort of um, uh, effort. Um, but the computing can actually be brain cycles as well as CPU cycles, and that's more like Galaxy Zoo. And then the other is citizen science, so the citizen scientist who's uh, actually doing data analysis for you, working out something about your, uh, your collection or your data. These are all kind of... Um, uh, interchangeable terms for some people I think and I think I don't think there are good definitions for for any of these really I guess the original crowdsourcing effort is probably the OED um, It seems like a good uh, good example to to, uh, to start with you know this is uh, people sent in words that should be added to the Oxford English Dictionary and I think I think that's a nice uh, example of a, of a crowdsourcing project where the community are providing the data set so they're actually delivering uh, uh, making your, making your uh, data set for you. A- an example, again, of crowdsourcing, but then maybe this is a bit more like citizen science, something like the RSPB's uh, Big Garden Bird Watch, where people are sighting birds and they're creating this record of uh, species populations in the UK. And again, there's a US counterpart to this, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But then there's things like Ushahidi, which again, this is crowdsourcing, but this is crowdsourcing information. So I think this project grew out of the uh, troubles in Kenya, I believe. Uh, and there was uh, basically you know, a lot of uh, um, uh, um, uh, violence after, after the elections. And, and they were, basically, they, they, it started as somebody was keeping a blog documenting where things had happened you know somebody's been injured here we need doctors there's been this you know school has been burnt down and it was been done in a blog comments and they the person who kept the blog said look I need somebody to help me make a better way to visualize this information and Ushahidi grew out of this it was basically very simple put something on a map and say what's happened and it was a um, uh, um, uh, Clay Shirky cites this as cognitive surplus some developers who n- heard about this problem Built Ushahidi Shahidi to solve a specific problem. And it's become a platform for kind of sharing uh, uh, real-time information about, about what's going on um, for, for whatever 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 uh, scenario you have. Volunteer computing, of course, there's things like SETI at home where people donated CPU time. And the and the BOINC project that grew out of this. And this is used uh, climateprediction.net, which is it's run by some of the people in atmospheric physics here in, in Oxford, is very, very popular. Projects kind of different in that it's people um, donating their computers, uh, but still, it's, it's still it's a volunteer type effort. But then there's things like Foldit. Um, so Foldit, if you haven't played it, is a game. Uh, this is a large protein molecule. Um, this, these are carbons here, um, and uh, uh, these are uh, large, complex biological molecules. And the Foldit game um, asks you to basically try and manipulate the molecule to change the score up in the top right there. So what you're actually doing, even though you don't really realise this, you're working out um, how the molecule might fold in nature and therefore what the active state of the molecule is. So how it actually works, what its biological function is and how that molecule might work. And the problem is, these are so we can do this with computers, except that it's a massively, massively intensive process to actually work out what they call the minimum energy state of these molecules. Is. So, but people can do it um, by just kind of trial and error and and play basically, and turns out the Foldit community and there's been recently a public pub, uh, paper in uh, Nature. Uh, the Foldit community are better than any other theoretical group at folding proteins. They're the best. They produce the best results in the world. And it's people who know nothing about proteins. Well, they now know a lot, as it turns out. But as a community, they they have they have beaten the academic community. And it's actually run by. Uh, a a fairly traditional academic group. Um, And I think Galaxy Zoo is much more like Fold It than anything I've shown before in that we ask people to uh, classify galaxies by their shape. This is a galaxy here, this blue fuzzy thing. This is an image taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, And we just ask people to answer very simple questions. So is the galaxy simply smooth and rounded with no sign of a disk? Well, it's kinda hard to see with this light, but this is fairly smooth and I can't see a disk there. So we ask people simple questions about galaxies and they tell us information about them. Um, we started Galaxy Zoo because we had a problem. Um, this telescope got built by uh, a, a, a bunch of physicists in the U.S. and uh, This is what happens when, and this is kind of an in-joke, so just humor me, uh, when you ask physicists to build uh, a a telescope. They make it robotic and just scan the whole sky. Um, I think they were trying to destroy astrophysics as a subject. (laughs) We can just finish this astrophysics thing. Anyway, but the point is they scanned the whole sky and they produced this fantastically large, rich data set. Millions and millions of galaxy images. Um, The thing about astronomers is we love to categorize things. So this is a thing called the Hubble Tuning Fork. Um, and uh, Edwin Hubble created it and it's a we like to split galaxies by their shape so you have these round fuzzy ellipticals and you have these spiral galaxies and like our own Milky Way and the first thing that astronomers do when they get an image of a galaxy is they say well is it spiral, is it elliptical, what color is it how many spiral arms does it have, does it have a bar going through the middle Um, that kind of stuff so we categorize things by their shape and that's something that computers are bad at and people are very good at. We are absolutely tuned as human beings to recognize shapes, people's faces. Uh, you know, the, the, the leopard in the bushes in the jungle that's about to jump out and eat you. We're just absolutely trained for this. And, and the, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, this robotic telescope, produced data sets that we just couldn't handle. So if we went back maybe 50 years in, in astrophysics, um, you might take images. These would be photographic plates of, of galaxies, and you might have 100 of them. I um, mean, your, your boss, your professor would classify them and would give you this, uh, this, this set of classified galaxies and you'd go away and um, write your thesis. Uh, a recent paper, uh, this would be 2007, a team of astronomers now classified again by eye about 10,000 galaxies between them. Um, we, had, we had a PhD student called Kevin Shabinski, um, who classified 50,000 of those Sloan galaxies and there were a million of them. Um, in, 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 a, in a month, um, and this is the scale of the, Sloan, the original Sloan dataset. It's just this fantastically large data set. Um, first result of Kevin's thesis, in fact, was that that's about the limit of a PhD student's uh, tolerance for classifying galaxies. It's about 50,000, and fair enough. Um, but Kevin was doing something pretty simple. He was trying to separate spiral galaxies like this from ellipticals, and, and he, he needed to look for a particularly rare type of galaxy, and we call these blue ellipticals. And so there, you can see the spiral galaxy here, it's blue, and, and, uh, and this one's kind of red. There's, there was this wisdom in astrophysics that spiral galaxies were blue and ellipticals were red, and we were looking for a particularly rare type. So Kevin had this research goal. There was also, and I promise to stop with the astrophysics in a minute, uh, there was also this result that should worry everybody, that there were more anti-clockwise spinning galaxies in the universe than clockwise spinning, which is ridiculous when you think that it depends on which side you're looking from. So this should worry everybody given that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. If you see more going one way then you have to start to wonder how, why. Uh, and so, there, was, so there, there were a couple of very specific research questions that we wanted to ask when we started Galaxy Zoo. Um, and we launched, we had a very, uh, we were very lucky, we got um, national press um, and this is our traffic from, from from launch day. You can see here, this is launch time and number of classifications per hour. Um, and you can see that there's a little blip here when we launched, and then our server melted here. And then we had a new server built for us by the time we got nine to ten hours into the project. And within a within day, uh, let's have some units. This is a survey paper. We were doing a Kevin month per hour. Um, so this is a, a month of researchers' time in an hour. This is... This is a large crowd, crowdsourcing science, um, and so I think it's worth just saying what you can do with with crowdsourced data. Um, you know, the wisdom of the crowd is not something that always holds. I think you know, Galaxy Zoo worked because we could average people's answers to the questions. You could you could equally compare uh, any of these people's answers and. The we had about 50 people classify each Galaxy for Galaxy Zoo in the original. Um, you could compare their classifications because you didn't need any training to do the task. It was something that everyone was equally qualified to do, provided you, could, you, you, know, you were of good, relatively good sight. Um, so in terms of accessibility, Galaxy Zoo is a nightmare. Because, um, so that's an aside. Um, and also, then how do you verify the quality of your, your results? And I think this is something that we're still working out. But the way that we do it for for something like Galaxy Zoo is we say, this is our professional classifier. And we ask the the academic to classify a small number of the objects. Uh, I think it was about 1,000 out of the million for Galaxy Zoo. And then we look for the people within the crowd who have classified those same objects. Um, And you can make a comparison. So academic, first generation comparison. These two people have classified the same object. Did they agree? Um, if they did, and they do a lot, then this person is, by proxy, as good as the professional. Uh, but then you can go further, because obviously you only have a small number of these. You can then make a kind of second generation comparison. You can say, well, we know this person's good, so what did, where's the overlap with the rest of the community? And well, they both saw this object. So you can then make a second and third and fourth and fifth generation comparison. And admittedly, the score gets... Um, um, yeah, the, 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 the kind of strength of the relationship and the score of the individual gets lower, but, um, but, but, but it, it does work. It works. In fact, the results are better than professionals, and I'm going to clarify that point by saying that what you actually get by crowdsourcing, and this is when crowdsourcing works, I think, is that you, if you have equally qualified people doing the task and they're uh, uh, um, all, 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 all doing the same same unit of work, and they're all using the same interface, then you can start to say, well, show me the most spiral galaxies. Show me the things where 90% of people said this was a spiral galaxy. That must start to mean something. So you, can, uh, you actually start to get s- statistics about how spirally a galaxy is, whatever that means. Um, and so these are all things where people said there was a merger, so two galaxies merging. And clean is 80% of people agreed, and super clean is 90% of people agreed. And so, and so you begin to get this richer data set than if you just had a single professional classification. And I think that's a really attractive part of the, the approach. The other thing is it works. It, we've produced papers. I mean, we are a traditional academic group in that we, uh, we write papers based on the results of our projects. There's currently about 20 six peer-reviewed publications from Galaxy Zoo and its sister projects. Um, very briefly, going back to this result, um, we confirmed this result, unfortunately, but actually it's because of this effect. So I don't know if, uh, who's seen this before, but some people will see the, uh, the dancer going clockwise and some people will see the dancer going anticlockwise, and if you blink, then she can magically change direction. It's actually a bias in the human brain. You're more prone to see things going anti-clockwise, even if it's not. So there's actually a bias in, in, our, in our way our brains are wired up. And so, so this was only something that you could prove when we actually just flipped a load of the galaxies over and still found the same excess going in the same direction. So we actually showed that. So Galaxy Zoo made us think, well, what can you do with communities of people and large data sets? And so we very, very quickly decided that actually we'd happened upon something that was uh, very powerful and, and, and really exciting. And so we created a, 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 a community called the Zooniverse. This is, if you like, a universe of zoos. Uh, and just today, I think it's probably a bit out of date, we have about 400,000 volunteers who across all of the projects now have produced something close to 300 million classifications of data, uh, be that a galaxy or a or, or something else. I think I think probably the most relevant project for this community is our project called Old Weather. Um, and this was actually very very kindly funded by the by the uh, by Jisc. Um, this is a this is my favourite project that we have actually, and we have we have about eight projects now. Um, Old Weather is um, takes Royal Naval logbooks from the First World War. And asks people to transcribe them. So, to transcribe, so this is HMS New Zealand. Uh, It's December the 19th, 1919, I think. Um, But what we want is the weather information. So, we've got wind direction, strength, Beaufort code, pressure, air, sea, temperature, and also position and date. Um, This was a very different project for us to try because we'd never. Um, you know, suddenly this is actually people typing in stuff. Uh, it takes, um, I would say, five minutes to do a page, uh, whereas it takes about five seconds to classify a galaxy. Um, it was a very different project to take on and, 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 and has very different, uh, a very different community around it. turns out that people contribute to old weather, not because of the, the value of the data, uh, and I'll just show you why we think the climate data is so important. People contribute because of the stories that go on in this column here, which is called the events. So this is the log of daily activity of the ship. People dying, um, senior members of the Admiralty coming on board, uh, battles. So they log everything that's going on with the ship in these logs. And uh, direct lineage from this and the kind of ideas behind this project, uh, this is our next project, um, which is going to be called Ancient Lives. These are the oxyrhynchus papyri that are held here in the Sackler Library. This is character by character transcription of ancient Greek. This is the largest collection of, of ancient Greek texts in the world, and these are from the city, well, the lost city of Oxyrhynchus in North e- northern Egypt. Um, there's records of the earliest. Uh, uh, there's earliest records of the Gospels in here, um, and and the point is, this is now this is Greek. This isn't English, but at the same time, the Greek alphabet isn't that big. I mean, there's only 22 regularly used characters, there's these other weird kind of characters that they use to signify this is a legal document, this is a, uh, you know, a, um, a letter. Um, but but it, this is, you know, this is going from the kind of transcription of a whole page of content down to the actual character by character where we're going to start to, you know, measure the statistics and the certainty of each character's transcription. Um, I just got my slides slightly out of order there. I just wanted to show you the, the reason that we started old weather, primarily. And, and um, you know, there were two reasons, but this is, honestly was the primary one. And it was because th- this is, a, this is a, um, a Google Earth image of um, the UK, October the 16th, 1987. And I don't know how many people remember the hurricane that hit the south of England that day, but you can see here, this is air pressure and you can see very, very low pressure over the south of England. Um, what the, all the dots on here are basically um, weather observations that were made that day, at that time. And what climate researchers do is they create, they reconstruct the climate based on um, based on all these observations. They build a model of what the climate was doing. If you go to the Southern Hemisphere same day, this is the model in the Southern Hemisphere. You can see there are some weather observations here, but there's this what they call the fog of uncertainty, which I think is a great term. Uh, the fog of uncertainty is where they ha- are uncertain about what's happening with the weather. So the climate, there's not enough data, the model is kind of, uh, uh, isn't, isn't as certain. If we go back uh, about 90 years now, so back into the, uh, this is towards uh, the beginning of the, uh, the First World War, again, this is the s- a model of the climate. And you can see lots of weather observations in North America and Europe. But now, the kind of fog of uncertainty is extended up into the Atlantic. We don't really know what was happening with the climate. We go to the southern hemisphere then. We have absolutely no idea what the weather was like 100 years ago in Antarctica. We just have no idea at all. And we probably will never know, um, unless we can get sufficient quantities of data. And this is just a very quick Google Fusion Tables. These are weather observations from old weather. So we have mobile weather platforms, right? These are ships sailing around. You can see there's trade routes here, uh, lots, of, lots of people going to East India. Um, but we basically have mobile weather stations. Obviously, there's a huge amount of activity up around uh, um, um, uh, Europe. This is the war, and this is presumably the Battle of the Falklands down here in the First World War. And so old weather's provided this this incredibly rich data set that we're only just beginning to explore. So this is one of these, um, we have this page called Old Weather Voyages. So this is HMS Inflexible that actually fought in the Battle of the Falklands. The color of the line is the sea temperature. Um, and you can see here are basically the l- entries from the events, um, things, so out of range ceased firing. So there's actually a, there's actually a battle going on here, and the uh, enemy sighted, and uh, Dresden sighted there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's basically this log of activity. It also becomes this amazing data set to query for, for um, things going on. So this is, this is the number of people in the sick bay on HMS Africa, uh, and the spike is the Spanish flu. Yeah. Um, there's also some fun stuff that we're about to put live on the old weather site. Um, we're trying to measure, you can search for keywords, so we're trying to measure, um, you know, this is war, how happy and sad are people. So we were, these are terms that we search for. And, War is a sad time, it turns out, <laughs> as, you might, as you might expect. Um, what people's favorite sports were. Turns out that you know, uh, football was still pretty popular, but you know, they did a fair bit of boxing. Uh, cricket was popular. I don't know how you play cricket on a shi- ship, actually, but maybe that's OK. Uh, and how was the weather? I think this is a very very uh, sensible thing to ask. Generally not very good, it turns out. Um, but we've also created our own social network in old weather. So these are all the ships, and when they mention each other, So these are you had to by law mention when you cited another member of the fleet, Uh, and so you can see here. So you can see that we basically have all these all these uh, cross-linking of all these uh, data. Maybe this is the earliest social network. Um, Motivations. I think we need to talk about when we're talking about crowdsourcing. I think this is crucial. I absolutely do. Um, This is a survey of about twenty thousand people. in between the first and the second version of Galaxy Zoo. So the health warning here is that this is a biased sample. These are people who wanted to come back to Galaxy Zoo too. But going back to the idea of the um, of Bentham Project, you know these are the super-excited people. You're a keen part of your community, but these are the people who do the most work. And the question was this was about a 10question survey What's your primary motivation for contributing to Galaxy Zoo? And there's lots of categories here. I like science. I like astronomy. Uh, our community is not one of amateur astronomers. This is important to realize. Uh, I like the project. I like to help. Uh, I like the scale of the universe. I'm a gamer. I'm an artist. Um, my teacher sent me. Not many teachers sent uh, me. My friend sent me. Obviously, not very popular. Um, I like, I'm view. I can't remember what this was. I like to learn. But this one, the, by far the largest spike, is I'm interested in contributing to research. And actually, this is why the Zooniverse exists. This was absolutely breathtaking result for us, that people saw value in what we were doing with the results from Galaxy Zoo. And this just completely changed the way we thought about the project. And that introduced this idea of, I think there are ethics around crowdsourcing and how you, what sort of projects you should do. Actually, and i go one step further. I think there's a social contract here between you and the community. And I thought I'd share, what our social contract is. We've written this down, we tell people about it and there's three simple rules that we apply to any projects that we're considering doing. Um, we strongly can believe that our community is one of collaborators and not users and what I mean by that is we, we cite authors, as pa- uh, um, community members as authors on papers we link to the list of the names of people, you can choose to be anonymous but You can give a publishable name, which you do have to screen for profanity, but more often than not, it's people's real name, and you can link to, we link to this list of names of people uh, on all of our papers, because lots of the efforts of our community, uh, lots of the science that's come out of our projects would not be possible without these people. We also believe strongly that people should be contributing to research, and this is not not necessarily... um, Uh, uh, the hard and fast rule for everybody, I would say, but this is our rule for ourselves. We don't build projects because they're outreach projects. turns out that people do learn about astrophysics through Galaxy Zoo, but that's not why we built Galaxy Zoo. We built it to do real research. And the third is kind of related to number two, is that you shouldn't waste people's time. And that's um, maybe an obvious statement, but a good example of wasting people's time would be uh, if you've got a... um, a data set that needs analysing, maybe it's very, very legible um, digital, you know, printed text, you can get very high success rate using optical character recognition on that data. You shouldn't ask people to transcribe stuff that machines can do just as well, for example. I just believe it's not a good use of their time. Very briefly I just wanted to kind of go through why we crowdsource science. And there are a a few key benefits. Number one is that you can get a lot of stuff done. We can classify a large data set millions of galaxies. Number two, you can measure the accuracy of your classification because you have these repeat classifications. And I think when you're coming to text transcriptions... Oh, I've only been going 25, have I? Time to stop? Oh, okay. Um, I have 25 minutes on here. But is it? Okay. Um, I'll go fast. Um, number three, serendipity. And by that um, I'll show you a good example. And number four, education. So people learn. So serendipity, people find things in your data, whether it's stories um, of, of, of um, things happening on ships or things like Hanny's Vorwerp, which is this unusual uh, astrophysical object that people have found. In fact, Hanny van Arkel found. Um, very briefly, I just wanted to touch on something David Weinberg said. Uh, he's a researcher at Harvard. He said, these people are not doing the work of scientists. They are doing the work of scientific instruments. And I think that's Quite a uh, contentious thing to say. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, we, we've, we've got a community. That the the set Crowdsourcing is an instrument. like You can use it to get scientific data. But at the same time, when you have lots of people looking at data, and you have people uh, uh, um, looking at your data regularly, they find unusual things. And we found new types of galaxies, called the Galaxies of Greenpeace, that we didn't know about in astrophysics before the community came to us. So very briefly, and I promise I'm nearly done, I thought I'd just end with what I think, where I think we're going with crowdsourcing and crowdsourcing science. Um, Galaxy Zoo would not be possible again in five years' time. The next generation telescopes are going to record billions of images of galaxies. We either need everybody in the world to be doing Galaxy Zoo or we have to find a different approach. And so what does that mean? Well, a good example would be combining the classifications by people with those of machines. And so an example would be bar strength in galaxies. So that's that thing there. People are very good at comparing. People are terrible at putting things on a scale. So rate one to five is a very bad question to ask a person because they don't. People, people, you know, say either brilliant or somewhere in the middle. People are, can't do a relative. People can't put things on a scale, but they can say that the bar of that one is stronger than that one. So think about. So they can put it in relative positions on the scale. There's lots of good research going on that combines measurements like this with computer algorithms to give you a very, very good data set. There's another thing called active data selection. Who should classify that galaxy based on the work that they've done before? So learning about having a model of the individual is going to be really important. And basically, that means that you can combine the efforts of machines with people and to scale up to absolutely astronomical scales. Um, I want to finish just by saying, and I hope this has come across, I don't think you should just do crowdsourcing for public engagement. I think you should have another reason. There's a contract between you and the community. It's nice to have people looking at your data set or whatever it is, but it's not enough to just do it for engagement. I think you have to convey why you're doing it to your community. Um, Just to give you an idea of the amount of data available or the amount of time available, this is. Uh, information is beautiful Um, um, plot. This is the 200 billion hours a year that the US population spend watching TV. And that little square at the bottom is the 100 million hours it took to create all of the content on Wikipedia. And on this scale, um, Zooniverse can't even, I mean, it's smaller than a a pixel. So it's absolutely tiny. But we worked out this number last week. We have 128 full-time employees in the Zooniverse who are... These are the, so this is actually, Old Weather is this one, right? We have 23 people full-time transcribing on Old Weather as a community. And, you know, Galaxy Zoo is 50 and Planet Hunters is something else. So just think about what you can do with, with large communities. And taking a slice of people's time online is something that, uh, that I think there's a huge opportunity. So anyway, thank you.